Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist and another installment of Waterloo Week. Boy, have I been looking forward to this one. A little while back, well, I say a little while back, about six months ago, I was chatting to Andrew Field, a scholar of this period who I have a massive amount of respect for. And we were talking about the Battle of Catcher Bra. It has gone on to be the second most downloaded episode of all of the hundred and however many it is that we've done now. Um, it is only five behind the all time, which was Trafalgar Mythbuster, which gives you a sense of how much people love to hear Andrew talk but also the, the quality of what he has to deliver. Andrew is a retired army colonel, uh, actually. He's a historian. He's author of Waterloo, the French Perspective, Catcher Bra, Prelude to Waterloo. Uh, he's very recently had a book out on Wellington's Waterloo Allies, which may end up being the focus of a future episode. But today, we're going to be talking about one of my pet peeves. It's Grouchy and the Waterloo story. Andrew wrote a book called Grouchy's Waterloo, The Battles of Ligny and Vavre. And today we are going to take a wrecking ball to a lot of the myths, misconceptions and utter nonsense that gets spouted when it comes to Grouchy's performance during this campaign. Andrew, it's great to see you. I'm massively looking forward to this. I was reading your book just a few weeks ago, actually, um, before going out to Waterloo myself. And I've got to say it's probably the most enjoyable work-based read I've had all year, um, which I hope comes across as high praise. Uh, it's great to see you again. How are you doing? Yeah, really well. Thank you, Zach. It's really nice to be back. I'm, you know, I'm flattered by the uh, attention that uh, the quarterback got. And I, I hope, um, like you, I'm fascinated by Grouchy. Um, and uh, I'm aware that all the myths that surround it, and I, I really feel passionate about trying to iron some of those out and helping people with their own interpretation uh, of what Grouchy got up to uh, during that campaign. 
Absolutely. I mean, we will, we will get on to the 1815 campaign in a minute, but I do think it's important to set Grouchy within a bit of context and talk about his career prior to 1815, which I think sometimes gets sidelined in people's commentary. And I think understanding the nature of the guy and, and what he's done up until this point perhaps will help in terms of understanding why he reacts in the, in the way that he does over the course of the Waterloo campaign. So what had Grouchy's career been like prior to Napoleon's first abdication in 1814? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously people know that he was a, a member of the aristocracy and he joined the army like many of them did at, at a very young age. I think he was about 14 when he joined in 1781, the Royalist Army. But he survived through the, the sort of Revolutionary War, or the Revolution and the Revolutionary Wars. Um, and, you know, in 1795, he was a general of division. So he was 28 years old uh, and before Napoleon had come to any sort of notice, really. And so, you know, he'd already made a mark uh, in the French army um, at, at that date. And people probably know about the expedition to Ireland. He was the deputy commander of that. He fought at Hohenlinden. Um, he was, a, interestingly, an infantry divisional commander at Ulm. Uh, in 1805. And again, people see him primarily as a, a cavalry officer. And although that is true, he did have a number of infantry commands during his life. And although perhaps not so much experience with combined arms as he had during 1815, um, he did certainly have some infantry experience. But of course, I think he really made his name as a cavalry commander, and particularly as a dragoon commander. And I think that's probably why um, he perhaps isn't quite as held in such high esteem as, as people, you know, the great cavalry commanders like Murat and uh, Bessier and, and, and some of the others, because they were the unfashionable um, part of the cavalry. You know, the light cavalry, La Salle, there's another name that, that sort of comes out. But he was a, the sort of good old steady dragoon commander. Um, and therefore, uh, he didn't hit the same headlines, I guess, as those people that, that are better known than him. But he certainly, when um, Napoleon established the martial aid uh, and when he did his first, you know, his sort of first pick, I mean, uh, Grouchy was in that age group, that sort of experience of many of that first choice. And so he could well have been a marshal even that early. And I'm sure that he was disappointed when he didn't get get um, get selected and then when he really made his name during the campaign sort of 1806 1807 as a dragoon commander at some of the the big battles Jena, uh, Eilau, Friedland, um, Raab, Wagram you know he really had made his name then as cavalry commander and you can well imagine his disappointment that when Napoleon made marshals after Wagram in 1809, Marmol MacDonald got picked up then, and he didn't. And so he really, uh, you could really see why perhaps he was feeling um, a little bit hard done by. Um, perhaps Napoleon saw him as a sort of one of the disciples of Moreau, um, and that might have been the reason. It certainly couldn't have been his battlefield performance, I think, which by then had been uh, exemplary, really. I guess then, of course, sorry, we, we move on to 1812, where he commanded a corps uh, in Russia, um, but he came back exhausted from that campaign. Uh, and although he was nominated for a corps command in 1813, 
he requested, interestingly, he requested an infantry command because he didn't feel by then he was robust enough to command a, a, a cavalry corps, but that was turned down, so he retired. Um, and it was only after the 1813 campaign that we, he was recalled to service, once, of course, Napoleon had effectively lost Murat, who'd gone back to Naples, uh, Bessier, who'd been killed, um, and, uh, well, and then one Montbrun, of course, he'd been killed in 1813 as well. So Napoleon's running quite short of, of sort of well-regarded uh, cavalry corps commanders. Um, and then he commanded all the cavalry, he was a commander chief of the cavalry during the 1814 campaign. And actually, they again excelled themselves, the cavalry excelled themselves during that campaign, and so did he. And um, he was only retired when he was badly wounded at Crayon. Um, and so he took no further part in that. But he re-established his, his uh, reputation uh, during that campaign. And so really, we get to 1815, when um, he gets recalled uh, by Napoleon, um, and then he's sent down uh, to deal with the, uh, the Duc d'Angleme uh, in the Midi and the, the Royalist uh, rising there, um, which he then puts down very effectively and efficiently. Um, and that really, if you like, brings us up to date on, on, uh, on the campaign prior to the, the Waterloo campaign breaking out. And he is the baby marshal, as I tend to refer to him, isn't he? Because he, he's the newest of, of the, the breed of marshals, because as you say, he, he gets his marshal baton for putting down that, that uprising. Well, that's not entirely true. That's when he is awarded it. Um, but Napoleon, after he'd been nominated to the marshal, Napoleon wrote a letter to him. Uh, and said, look, you need to understand this isn't for what you've just done. This reflects the outstanding service that you've given to me and to France uh, over the last 20 years of, of warfare uh, and the, you know, and the standards that you've achieved doing that. So Napoleon did make a point of saying, you know, it wasn't this very minor campaign that was easily put down uh, that you were awarded this, but this is a reflection of the entirety of your service. Interesting, because I was going to ask you about reputation and kind of the the way that he's viewed by his contemporaries, because my sense is that he has this kind of calm, methodical, kind of careful manner about him, which would stand in, you know, quite stark contrast to Murat, for example, or, or Ney. Is that a fair assessment of the guy? Because the other, the flip side of this is cavalry have to be kind of daring is perhaps the wrong word, but they have to be willing to act on impetus and, and seize moments. And, and that's not necessarily something that we tend to attribute to Grouchy in, in my kind of reading of people's comments. Well, I, I think you're probably right in that respect. I mean, he wasn't as flamboyant um, as Murat and perhaps he wasn't quite as gung-ho uh, as Ney, but I think he was calculating. I think he was dependable and I think he was very effective and I think it was that sort of calm control that seizing the moment identifying you know when to launch his cavalry um, that probably made him a very effective commander without necessarily being the guy who felt he needed to be at the front of his own cavalry you know drawing them forward into the charge I mean he was wounded 14 times in his career so you know, nobody can accuse him of, of being, you know, 
commanding from the rear, so to speak, uh, or leading from the rear. So yes, I think it's it's more perhaps this the the reputation that Murat and Anay earned that rather put him in the shadows. But I don't think that made them any more effective as a cavalry commander than than he was. How does he get on with the other marshals? You know, the De Nea and Mura, and, and equally when it comes to you know infantry commanders, when it's you're talking about the likes of, of Lebeau or, or Saul or whoever it might be, do they get on? Is there any kind of tension? Because as you kind of talked about earlier, Grushis from the aristocracy, some of these guys have worked their way up the hard inverted commas hard way. Um, so is there their tension and, and rivalry and discontent between them? Well, I don't necessarily get the impression that there was. And I think there is, you know, people that look at Grouchy and and talk about him not being popular, not being respected by the others. I think that reputation falls out of his apparent failure in 1815. You know, he clearly didn't get on with his subordinate commanders in 1814, Van Damme, Gerard, who both resented the fact that he'd been recently promoted to the marshalate and they hadn't. They resented being put under his command. And then there were other um, marshals who wrote post 1815. Marmont was perhaps one of the most famous who said, you know, this man should never have been entrusted with an army command. Um, so I think he was generally judged post-1815 on his performance during that campaign, rather than fairly judged over the entirety of, uh, of you know, his, his sort of campaigning career. Okay, so let's move on to talk about the Waterloo campaign itself. So at the start of it, what kind of a force has he got on, under his command? What kind of state are those troops in? Well, at the beginning of the campaign, before, if you like, before the French crossed the, uh, the frontier into, into Belgium, Grouchy was the commander-in-chief of the cavalry. That was his job. Um, and that, that consisted of four corps. So the first uh, and second, um, the first one being the light cavalry under Pajol, the, the dragoons under Exelmans, and then the third and fourth, if you like, the heavy cavalry, mostly cuirassier uh, corps of Kelman and, uh, and Milo. Um, and so when they crossed the border, that was his command. Um, however, on the afternoon of the 15th, them having crossed the, the frontier in that the morning, that's when Napoleon chose to split his command into two wings and a reserve, himself commanding um, the reserve, uh, Grouchy commanding the right wing, consisting of the third and fourth army corps, those of Van Damme and, and, um, and uh, Jihad, uh, and, um, and the first and second Cavalry Corps, and then of course Ney going off to Quatre Bras with the First and Second Army Corps, um, and then the support of various cavalry that, if you like, were pushed forward to him as that part of the campaign, uh, or that part of the campaign went on. So Grouchy goes from commanding all the cavalry to the right wing during the first day of the campaign, and that in itself must have been quite a challenge for him, because of course the makeup of his headquarters would need to be different. Um, and of course he, he hadn't got to know his subordinate commanders. And in fact, it was only after he'd been issuing orders to Van Damme and Gerard and then refusing to obey his orders because they didn't accept him as their, as their senior commander because sort had of forgotten or hadn't bothered to let them know that they were now under his command. So on the first day of the campaign, he changed command from the cavalry to the right wing of uh, of the army. 
And at Lienu, is it fair to say that he has a fairly quiet day? Um, I'm thinking of his troops particularly being stationed out on the extreme right, because he, uh, correct, please correct me if I've got this wrong, he has a corps that's directly under his command. Well, he... Is that right? When Napoleon split his army up into those sort of three parts, you know, at the, the bottom line, if you like, of his orders were, however, if I am present, then I will take command of that wing as well as any other troops that are there. So when we get to Ligny, Napoleon is back in command of his army and Grouchy seems to have been given the subordinate command of, if you like, the right wing of the battlefield. So he's on the right flank. Um, he maintains command of the first and second cavalry corps. Uh, and because he has no infantry, he's allocated um, one of the divisions uh, from Girard's corps in order to give himself some infantry. So he didn't have a, a, a very balanced combined arms command. And because of the ground, so the, the Ligny Brook uh, and the steep ground on the far bank, and a very predominantly infantry enemy, if you like, he wasn't really in a position to do very much. Um, the infantry division was quite heavily engaged and the Prussians did send some cavalry down onto the plain to attack him, but he quite easily saw that off. So the truth is, you're right, uh, he was securing the right flank. It was more of a flank guard to the main battle rather than a, an integral part of the, of the, the main, of uh, Napoleon's main attack. So yeah, absolutely fairly quiet day for him. Yeah, just uh, as a quick one for folks who perhaps aren't familiar, most of the fighting uh, around Ligny focuses on Ligny itself, the town, um, and then off to the west of that, uh, the area around Saint-Amand, Saint-Amand-la-Haye, um, which is where the bulk of the, the infantry assaults take place. So Grouchy being out on the right flank isn't kind of in the thick of the operations at, at Ligny, the, the fighting kind of focuses further out to the west. Okay, so let's talk about post Ligny now, um, because this is where everyone loves to pile on the hate uh, to Grouchy. What kind of, of command is he given? Because uh, th there is a, a very obvious point that most people know about. He is the guy who's given uh, a redacted, a reduced version of uh, the, the French right, right wing and, and Napoleon takes troops off to um, supplement Ney's force. And that's where Napoleon's main thrust becomes uh, kind of chasing Wellington's Anglo-Dutch German force. Um, so what's Grouchy left with? I guess it is the first question, um, but perhaps more crucially, what's the job that he's sent to fulfil in the broader sense? And then, and I suspect this is going to be quite crucial in terms of picking apart a lot of the, the myths surrounding this. What are his actual precise orders that he gets from Napoleon? Okay, I mean, I think, first of all, we need to understand that the, the fighting at Ligny finished at about 10 o'clock on the evening of, of the 16th. and uh, the following morning, Grouchy is waiting to get his orders from uh, Napoleon. Um, and he's quite surprised when Napoleon declares that he's going to go and visit the battlefield. Uh, and of course, spends the morning of the 17th visiting the battlefield, talking to the troops, raising morale, uh, and waiting for information on what's been happening over on the left flank where, where um, Ney is at Quatre And of course, Napoleon has been damned by history for wasting a morning. Now, 
I'm not sure that that's a, for me to go, it's not appropriate to go into too much detail on that because we're talking about Grouchy. Um, but Napoleon's been widely damned for, for wasting a morning, but I don't think that's fair, but I'm not gonna spend time discussing that because it's because actually <clears throat> it's only in the late morning that finally Napoleon turns to Grouchy and gives him a set of verbal orders. <clears throat> and those orders are well recorded. The, the wording of them slightly different depending on who you read. But Grouchy uh, in his memoirs wrote, uh, wrote out, this is what Napoleon said to me and several other people follow that. So I'm just gonna give those because uh, I've got them in front of me. Uh, this, is, uh, this is what Grouchy says Napoleon said to him. Get off in pursuit of the Prussians, complete their defeat by attacking them wherever you find them and never let them out of your sight. I am going to join with Marshal Ney's forces, which I shall take to attack the English if they hold this side of the Thouanet Forest. Correspond with me by paved road. Now, the, the troops with which he has to do that are the same troops as he was given to command the day before. That is the third and fourth army corps, uh, Van Damme uh, and Gerard, and the first and second cavalry corps, essentially. But you need to remember, of course, that those two army corps were the two corps that had taken the biggest part in the battle the day before, taken the heaviest casualties the day before, had exhausted their ammunition the day before. And so they hadn't had much time to recover. And that's part of the reason for me that, that Napoleon was slow to get things moving the next day. The troops were not in a position to conduct a pursuit and therefore they needed to rest, they needed to clean their weapons, they needed to replenish their ammunition, as well as Napoleon needing the latest intelligence of what was happening at Quatrebar before he could decide what his next step was. So Grouchy was left with two army corps that were exhausted, were, had taken heavy casualties the day before, and also needed to reorganize the battalions within a regiment to redistribute the manning, perhaps to go from two battalions to a single full-size battalion. There were lots of things that they had to do before they'd have been in, in a, a position to, uh, to move off. Now, in that, those verbal orders, Napoleon orders Grouchy to attack the, uh, the Prussians wherever you find them. But of course, the first thing he had to do was find them. And we all know, again, there was a terrible failure within the French army from the top downwards of pursuing the Prussians and identifying their line of retreat. Everyone seemed to presume that they would retreat down their lines of communication. That is either towards Liège, off to the sort of east or northeast, or down to Namur, down to the east, a little bit south of east. Because those were, the, those were their line of communications. That's where the reinforcements were gonna come down. That's where the supplies were going to be. And it was, it was expected for everyone that when you retreated from a lost battle, that is where you went. So the Prussians bucking that trend and retreating north in order to stay in line with, with Wellington, you know, that's hugely to the credit of the Prussians. And it is not unsurprising that that took the French by surprise. Whose fault was it that they didn't try and find out whether? It was certainly Napoleon's. It was also Salt, because really Napoleon shouldn't have needed to give orders for that. You know, that was what Salt was there for. You know, all he needed to say to Salt was, look, make sure we find out where the where the Prussians are going. And then it would have been Salt's job to allocate troops to do that job and 
and put orders down. So Soult must take some of the, well, Napoleon takes some of the responsibility, Soult takes some of the responsibility. I mean, Grouchy, although he was now commanding a wing, he still commanded two cavalry corps, one of which was a light cavalry corps whose role is reconnaissance, and he didn't take the initiative to push them out either. And so you could go all the way down to down the chain of command, almost to the regimental commanders, and say that they should all take a slice of responsibility for that failure. And depending on who you believe, it was actually Pajol who claims he sent troops off uh, down towards Namur uh, to try and identify um, where the Prussians were going, because that was one of their obvious lines of retreat. And of course, we all know he came across quite a few wagons. He came across a battery of artillery, which he took, and thousands of travellers. Remember, there were 10,000 deserters from the Prussian army uh, after the Battle of Ligny. So it's no surprise that Pajol perhaps um, thought that that was the direction of travel. And of course, that initially threw um, everybody off. So, you know, the afternoon of, of trying to identify where the Prussians were going was a, a terrible failure on behalf of the French. And as I've already said, the, 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 um, you know, the blame for that goes right across the chain of command. Just as Grouchy tries to get people moving, he doesn't really know which direction to go in. And it's only later, so uh, about three o'clock, that Grouchy now gets a set of written orders um, from Napoleon that he dictated uh, to, um, to Bouton. And what's interesting is that um, in all the recriminations that followed the campaign when Grouchy had been exiled to America, Grouchy denied that he had received any written orders from Napoleon. And it was only later, uh, when some years later, when, if you like, the written order was published, that he finally admitted that he had he had got any orders. Um, and of course, those orders directed him categorically to move to Jean Bleu um, with the cavalry of Pajol uh, and, the, and the army corps. And it was then really, it was only then, so mid-afternoon, that, uh, that Grouchy's troops started moving um, in pursuit of the, of the Prussians. Um, and so although Grouchy is very quick to blame Napoleon for that delay, the end of the day, let's not pretend that Grouchy didn't make mistakes. He certainly did. I mean, for some obscure reason, which he never explained, you know, he sent off Van Damme's corps to the east before Gerard, and yet Gerard was to the east and, and Van Damme was to the west of the battlefield of, of Van Damme, oh, sorry, of Ligny. So actually it would have made far more sense to send off Gerard's corps first with Van Damme following on. So because he ordered Van Damme to move first, Gerard had no option but to wait for Van Damme's troops to file past down the road before he could follow on. Um, and Grouchy talks about being very angry with Gerard because he decided to have his lunch. Uh, after he'd been given the order, but there was nothing Gerard could do until the Third Corps had passed him. And, and Grouchy sent him, sent both corps down the same road. There were two good roads to, to Jean Bleu, and he could have sent one corps down both, you know, down either of them, but he chose not to do that. So, you know, no one should think that, that Grouchy was, was blameless in this slow start and the slow, slow march to Jean Bleu. Yes, the weather was terrible, and it's hard today to know the extent to which that 
would have slowed the pursuit up. But but Grouch's sort of uh, complaint that the, the that the um, that the Prussians have got 16 hours advance on them is not I wouldn't say it's quite disingenuous, um, but you know the Prussians left behind quite a strong rear guard at the end of Ligny, and they didn't move off the Ligny battlefield until 2 a.m. Although the fighting had finished in two uh, uh, at ten, so you know again, there's once you start really probing into the detail, you see things aren't quite as perhaps straightforward as many later histories make them out to be. This is what I love about doing interviews like this, where we start to really probe the little details that make the big difference in terms of understanding. Um, before we start talking about the pursuit um, proper, inverted commas, I just want to kind of set the job that Grouchy's got into some kind of context. How difficult is what he's been told to do um, in terms of actually achieving it? And equally, is there a sort of precedent for this sort of thing? Or is this an unusually difficult situation? Do we have situations where we can turn around with an equivalent and say, ah, but, if you consider the example of X, actually they were able to handle a similar kind of situation, whether it be in terms of, of geography or, or lack of intelligence or, or the, the um, logistical um, considerations, but were able to do it better. Well, <clears throat> yes, there's a couple of things that come out of this for me. Uh, first of all, Napoleon's written um, order to Grouchy uh, has changed things significantly from his verbal order in which he said, you know, find them and never let them out of your sight and attack them whenever you find them. In his second uh, order, uh, he, he really is talking, he says, it's important to understand what Blücher and Wellington want to do and if they want to unite their armies. Um, he also almost warns Grouchy against fighting. He tells him to keep his cause close together and to identify uh, routes of retreat. Because of course, one of Grouchy's complaints was that his force was about 25, 27,000 men, although most histories will tell you it was 33, and it was on the 15th, but after the Battle of Ligny and the considerable casualties they'd suffered, it was, it was considerably less than that. Um, Grouchy was very worried that the Prussian army was going to turn on him, destroy him, and then attack Napoleon's own lines of communication. Because although the Prussians had suffered heavy casualties, about 30,000 at Ligny, of course, the next day they met up with Bulov's Fourth Corps, which had not fallen at, at Ligny, and Blow Me Down was 30,000 strong. So the Prussians were back up, if you like, to almost full strength whereas Grouchy was considerably outnumbered. So he was very worried that the Prussians would turn on him. So we talk about a pursuit, but of course, what Grouchy was doing was not a pursuit. You know, a pursuit is a sort of aggressive follow-up uh, after a successful battle in which the enemy have sort of suffered a heavy defeat or even a rout. Well, that wasn't the case. Um, and so, this was never a pursuit, and anyone who calls it a pursuit is wrong. Napoleon said, I want to understand what the Prussians are doing. So it was something of a, a reconnaissance, really, a, perhaps an armed reconnaissance. It was quite a strong force that, that Grouchy had, but it was certainly not a force strong enough to attack the Prussian army. 
and and Grouchy was very aware of that. So it's not a pursuit, it's a reconnaissance. Yes, you can argue that the force he was given was probably too strong to be a reconnaissance, and that actually Napoleon would have done better to, to take at least one of the army corps with him to fight at Waterloo, um, and, and therefore Grouchy could have done his task with his two cavalry corps to identify what the Prussians were doing, um, but it certainly wasn't strong enough to attack the Prussians, and I think Napoleon uh, realised that, and hence in his written order he was a, he was a bit more can um, sort of restrain in his language about what Grouchy was to do beyond just identifying what Blücher wanted to do. So that was Grouchy's role. It was to try and find out the intentions of Blücher, where he was moving and what his intentions were. And to be fair, whether he was going to join with Wellington. Of course, what those orders don't say, and none of the orders that were sent to Grouchy by Napoleon said that he was to stop the Prussians from interfering at Waterloo. Grouchy was not a flank guard because that would have made him part of Napoleon's army if that had been his mission. You know, his mission was not to be a flank guard and stop anyone attacking the flank of, of Napoleon's army. His role was to one of reconnaissance to identify what the Prussians intended to do. I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. Um, let's let's keep it going um, and start talking about the 18th, because by the 18th of June, we start to see contact, don't we, between um, Grouchy's men and the Prussians. Um, so shall we talk about the, the early phase of fighting around Wav, um, which, of course, is the battle that everyone seems to love to forget? Uh, you've got Thielman's 3rd Prussian Corps um, holding the river line. Um, talk us through the early stages of the engagement uh, along the, the, the Dial or, or Deal, depending on your pronunciation, river. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I've just got to, I think we just need to fill in that little bit of time. Um, so on the 17th, Grouchy finally marches over to Jean Bleu. Uh, Exelman's cavalry had identified a Prussian corps there on the afternoon evening of the uh, of the 17th, and that was Tielemann's third corps that had retired from Ligny uh, to that way because the first and second corps, of course, retreated north uh, towards Wavre. Um, but by the end of the night, really, of of the uh, of the 17th and 18th, the Prussian army was pretty much concentrated around Wavre, and Grouchy is, um, what shall I say, a little bit confused with the conflicting information that he was receiving from his cavalry patrols, but, but even more so from uh, the information that was passed to him by the local people, who some had said the Prussians were moving to the east, some said they were moving to the northeast, and some were saying they were going to Wavre, and others were saying they were marching on Brussels. And to be fair to Grouchy, he's passing this information on to Napoleon, but he's hedging his bets a little bit as to where the main part of the Prussian army is going. In other words, he still doesn't really understand because Grouchy's force is in contact with Tielemann's third corps and Bulov's fourth corps, which hadn't fought at Lingley. He has no contact at all with the first and second corps 
which had, had retreated due north from Lingney directly to Wavre and, and, and had reached that the night before. So Grouchy is not clear on what is happening. And although all the, I, I guess he has more information directing him towards Wav than the others, but he's sort of interpreting it that perhaps there were Prussian forces going in all those different directions. Um, and that they'd split into two or maybe even three different uh, groups of forces, and some were going to one, some, some to another. Um, and so to sort of, when he leaves Jean Bleu in the morning of the 18th, which again was later in the morning than he should have set off, uh, he really starts heading towards the northeast. And if you like, by doing that, he's almost, he's going away from, from Napoleon and he's almost putting the first and second corps between him and Napoleon. Uh, of course, the third and fourth Prussian corps they started to his northeast from Jean Bleu, but then went to meet the rest of the army at Wavre. And so if you like the army, the, the Prussian army is now almost between Grouchy um, and Napoleon. And therefore he has absolutely no chance of stopping the Prussians from going there. But as he advances north and he receives more information, uh, and it does look increasingly as if uh, the Prussians are heading north, he interprets that, that they are going to pass through Wavre and march on Brussels. And he interprets that is that Wellington will retreat to, to Brussels and the Prussians and, the, and Wellington will meet in front of Brussels. And that is where they will fight the French. That is what Napoleon was beginning to believe. And that is what Grouchy was beginning to believe. And neither of them considered that the Prussians might march across country, across those sort of muddy uh, dirt roads to go from Wav to, um, to, uh, to Waterloo. So when Grouchy eventually catches up with the Prussians at Wav, the first, uh, sorry, the fourth corps and the second corps and the first corps are already marching towards Waterloo. So, so Grouchy has no chance at all of stopping them, but he believes they're marching north towards Brussels. So in a way, he feels that he's doing the right thing. And of course, the information that he passes to Napoleon points that way. And of course, one of the letters that, um, uh, that Napoleon writes, well, actually it was Soult, who writes and sends to, to Grouchy, when Grouchy has said, I'm marching on Wavre, is you know, in the morning of, of, the, uh, of the 18th, um, you know, Salt is actually saying, you are marching in the right direction. This is what Napoleon wants you to do. He wants you to march on Wav. So in Grouchy's mind, he's doing the right thing. Um, now we've passed over the marching to the sound of the guns, which perhaps we'll, we'll, um, we'll talk about a bit later if you want, or you know, if you want to put it in there. But all this time, Grouchy believes he is doing what Napoleon wanted of him was to try and stay, stay in contact with the Prussians and to identify the direction that they're marching on. And what is their intention? His interpretation, the information he has is that they're marching towards Brussels and that is where they're going to meet up with Wellington. What you've done there is paint a beautiful picture of the fog of war that I think all too often just gets completely lost in, in this picture. 
And we love to sort of sit back and, and do our armchair general thing and assume that everything was incredibly clear. And, you know, looking back with hindsight, it's a 2020 process. And the reality is, as you've painted very clearly for us, they don't really know what's happening. You know, nobody has dropped in from Prussian headquarters and, you know, kindly let them know what Bucha's plans are for the 18th of June. Um, and, and as a result, you end up with people sort of trying to deal with things sort of on the fly. Um, can I pick up on something you said there about how nobody had anticipated the, the, the Prussian march towards Waterloo? Is that because they'd looked at a map and looked at the roads? And, and to this day, if you look at some of those roads, they're not particularly passable. Um, sure, standards have changed over the last 200 years, but they are still tough, um, tough sections of track and, and in some cases still dirt and crushed rock roads to traverse. Um, or is it that um, they, they just think that the Prussians have had too much taken out of them to be able to march in any substantial strength to support the Allies at Waterloo? I think a clue here comes probably um, when Grouchy is famously eating his strawberries at, at, at uh, the village of Ahain, um, and they hear the, the guns of Waterloo, and, and, and Gerard sort of famously says, we, we must march towards the guns. Um, of course, you have to remember that Napoleon said to Grouchy, you get off, I'm going to join with Ney and I'm going to fight the British. So it was no surprise to Grouchy that there's, they can hear a battle going on. Um, and Grouchy has his own mission and it's not to join Napoleon fighting against Wellington. Otherwise, Napoleon would have said, when you hear me engaging, engaging Wellington, march over and, and fall on his flank. And of course, he never got any, any uh, orders, anything like that. Uh, or perhaps until it was very late in the, in the evening, it, it, it was too late. So it's really important to look at the orders that Grouchy gets from Napoleon before you judge whether he did the right thing or not. Now, when Gerard says to Grouchy, you must march to the sound of the guns, Grouchy looks at his map and says, well, we'll we've got to march across these roads, similar roads to the ones that the Prussians actually took. Um, and he speaks to his uh, artillery commander, um, who says, there is no way we will be able to take our artillery along those roads over the river uh, dial and to get there in time for the battle. Interestingly, the engineer officer the senior engineer officer says, I will guarantee to get your guns there, you know, because I will use my engineers to make the roads passable to your artillery. But it, but the argument was on the basis that essentially they would not be able to get across to the battlefield in time to make any impact on the battle. And of course, Grusha's other argument was, and anyway, I'm not ordered to do that. And actually, Gerard, in his writings, two pamphlets that he wrote um, later on, long after the battle, to justify uh, his actions, admitted that he would not have taken the advice that he gave Grouchy. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. He said, I wouldn't have marched to the sound of the guns. So, again, people damn Grouchy, but it, it wasn't his mission. He hadn't been ordered to do it. And he and by the time the battle started, A, he was expecting that battle. And then he probably couldn't have got there in time to make any difference anyway. And although people will argue that he might have been able to interdict the march to the Waterloo battlefield, um, in order to have done that, he would have had to cross the dial first thing on the morning of the 17th. Long before these arguments were, were raging. And of course, if he had done that, and even quite reputable historians have suggested that that's what he should have done with all the benefits of hindsight. The, the, the truth is, if he'd have done that, he would have lost contact with the Prussians. And his number one job was to find the Prussians, stay in contact with them, try and find out what they're planning to do and keep Napoleon informed. So if he'd have done that crossing of the dial that morning, he would have lost contact with the Prussians and he would have been actually disobeying a direct order from Napoleon himself. Absolutely. As we were saying uh, before we started recording, you know, there are some who talk about acting within the spirit of the orders rather than the, the direct letter of the orders. And with the best one in the world, folks, if you're suggesting that, you do need to consider how effective that defence would be if you found yourself up against a court-martial and you turned around and said, but I obeyed the spirit of the orders, even if I didn't follow the direct letter of what they suggested. Um, and I suggest to you that you wouldn't find that defence works particularly well. I think, of course, it's true. We know that Napoleon did not like his core commanders to exercise their uh, initiative. Because in, in his correspondence, there are examples of him saying, look, they don't need to know why they're being, they're being ordered to do this. They just need to do it. It's my job to work out why they have to do as they're told. And let's be honest, Wellington was absolutely no different. He did not encourage uh, his sub-commanders to use their initiative for all the same reasons. And again, there are plenty of examples of that. Yes, when these things did happen, when troops did use their initiative, and I guess Quatrebra, the second Netherlands division, holding and concentrating and holding at Quatrebra is a good example. Then of course, he turned a blind eye to that. But where, of course, they used their initiative uh, and got caught out, then he was very quick um, to uh, to make sure they didn't make the same mistake again, let's say. So, you know, 
Grouchy was not the sort of commander to use his initiative, and Napoleon was not encouraging any of his subunit commanders or his subformation commanders to use their initiative either. So we have to be careful that we don't judge Napoleon or Grouchy on subsequent events and with the benefit of hindsight. Absolutely. Um, uh, there's one obvious thing that needs to be addressed as well, which is just basic geography, I think. Um, and this idea that, and it builds on, on what you said about, you know, this idea, had Grouchy marched to the sound of the guns, would it have made any difference? The point that I often make um, is one that only really kind of slapped me in the face, really, when I visited the ground. Um, when you travel between Plans Noir and Wavre, and you look at this landscape, and everyone has this perception, Belgium, flat country, flat landscape, you know, you're, you're walking across a playing field. It, maybe in some regions you can make that suggestion when it comes to that particular part of Belgium you really can't there is something called the land defile and the clue is very much in the name and what is obviously important to factor into this as well is that you've had torrential rain over the previous day which means that landscape which might have just been passable albeit very difficult under normal circumstances would have been far worse because the ground is is saturated. Yeah, I mean, well summarised, Zach. I don't think I, I've got anything more to add, to add to that. To that, to be perfectly honest, um, of course, you know, we can all look at a map, uh, and we can, yeah, you know, they could have gone here or they could have gone there. But of course, we we don't. Well, we do have the maps that they used in in those days, and if you look at them, it's rather more difficult to read the terrain because they don't have contours that we can do now. Anyone with a military background, like myself, looks at contours and can almost envisage the ground. Far more difficult on the type of maps that, that they were using. They would have a much better idea of what the tracks were like. Um, and you know, the, again, in the accounts there, the broken country, the 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 ditches, the hedges, all that is well described by the, the first-hand accounts of the soldiers and officers that were that were involved in this in these uh, in these maneuvers. Um, so even if they'd have taken that march and by threatening, if you like, the flank of the Prussian march, that may have held the Prussians up a little bit. But again, Grouchy's force wasn't big enough to hold up an army of 80,000. It wasn't going to get in front of them. It might only have threatened a, a flank and therefore you know one of the Prussian corps could have protected that flank now you know, this is just another what if that's really difficult to to discuss because no one really knows what might have happened but for that event to have happened Grouchy would a have had to disobey his direct orders from Napoleon and secondly he would have to overcome the difficulties of the train that uh, that everyone acknowledges um, were there Absolutely. I mean, as I tend to quite sarcastically say, how is Grouchy meant to get there any faster than the Prussians do? Is he supposed to fly? Because that's pretty much the only way it could have been achieved. Um, certainly, certainly by the time he got the order that arrived to him, at him sort of late afternoon, early evening, because the timings are, are contested by different people. Um, but by the time he got the order which says, move towards us, um, I, I, let me just see, I have got it here in front of me uh, somewhere, uh, where he says, move closer to me. Um, it was too late. It was too late for him to, to do anything. And so 
actually it was almost a worthless order and almost it was almost like Napoleon preparing the ground for him to blame Grouchy uh, for not appearing because he'd be able to say that he'd actually ordered him to do so. Um, and maybe that's pushing credibility a little bit too far. It certainly worked in, in Napoleon's favour uh, when he, uh, when he re uh, reflected on the campaign. But I think what is true is that we can blame Grouchy for being slow, for being uh, a little bit wary of the Prussians turning on him, of not interpreting the information he was getting particularly well. Uh, but actually, the direction he got from Napoleon, the clarity of, of Napoleon's orders to him were appalling. I mean, you know, virtually Napoleon ignored Grouchy over the period from when they parted at, at lunchtime on the 17th um, until, the, uh, until the Battle of Waterloo was lost. The information that Grouchy was being sent really meant he was operating pretty much in the dark. Um, and therefore, again, whilst Grouchy made mistakes for sure, really Napoleon must take much of the blame for the lack of direction that he was giving uh, um, Grouchy. And not just a lack of direction or a lack of orders, but a, a lack of situational awareness of what he was doing. He only tended to reply to Grouchy when Grouchy's reports came to him. So who should have been all over this, he should have been sending information uh, to Grouchy without really being ordered to by Napoleon, because that's part of his job as a, as a chief of staff. No arguments there from me whatsoever. Um, I think we, we're of a similar mind when it comes to the apportioning of blame. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about a number of kind of threads that you've raised there, one of which, of course, was uh, a particular letter that causes all kinds of controversy, um, the the blame game and the, the love to hate kind of relationship. But before we get there, I do want to talk about the fighting at Wav, because one of the things that I think sometimes gets missed is that Grouchy's successful at Wav in terms of, of what he's trying to achieve there, which is facilitate a river crossing. Uh, he manages to push back the Prussian Third Corps, they are withdrawing. And it's only the news of what's happened at Waterloo that then causes Tillman to turn around and launch an attack uh, the following morning on the 19th. But before we get there, we've got to talk about the fighting along that river line, uh, which concentrates at uh, the Pont de Christ, um, which is spearheaded up by Van Damme, um, but also the, the Mill at Biège. Let's start with, with Van Damme. Those attacks have always struck me as pretty futile. Um, multiple attempts to just achieve a, a front assault. And sure, you know, you're trying to cross a, a river. What can you do? You've got to attack the bridges um, or maneuver. But is Grouchy kind of hamstrung by Van Damme just kind of persisting in that frontal assault? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And there's, there's a difficulty here because Grouchy writes in many of his later writings that he ordered Van Damme not to attack the river line um, and that he wanted, he, he sort of, Grouchy is sort of suggesting that he knew this was going to be an impossible task because the Prussians had had plenty of time to deploy their troops and defend a, a strong 
position. So they were defending buildings overlooking uh, a river with a single, really a single crossing point. Some some accounts say there were two bridges in in Wav. Um, so it was always going to be a, a difficult fight in in Wav to get across there. At Biège, the Biège Mill that you mentioned, the crossing wasn't really a bridge as far as I can understand. It was just a little foot crossing that allowed you to cross where perhaps a river was dammed in order to drive the mill there. So it wasn't a proper bridge. And then the bridges further down the river, of course, uh, at Limal, uh, particularly the next, the next one down, were proper bridges. So Van Damme will say that he ordered uh, sorry, Grouchy will say he, he ordered Van Damme not to attack. However, in the first account we have from Grouchy that was written in 1818, so a few years later, that was his first really account of the battle, his account of the thing. He says in there that he ordered Van Damme to attack in Wav, and only subsequently did he deny that he gave those orders. Indeed, he says he ordered Van Damme not to attack. So that's the first point. Second point is if you're in a bit of a hurry, then actually trying to take a bridge by a coup de main is a perfectly acceptable tactic. You throw in a quick attack and if it fails, OK, you stand back and you don't just reinforce failure. So if you like, if you see Van Damme's first attack as a coup de main, then you can sort of go, OK, that was a fair effort. Of course, what Van Damme does is he clears his own bank of Prussians, then launches attack after attack on the bridge. Grouchy claims that Van Damme launched 13 attacks um, on the bridge. Um, I don't know how he gets to that number, as he wasn't there for most of the time, but that's what he claims. But what he's saying is Van Damme used to see sacrificed his men uh, in attacking at Waaf. When Grouchy realised that Van Damme had got himself stuck, he had to find a different way across. He'd ordered one of Van Damme's, well, Van Damme had ordered uh, one of his divisions to try and take Bierge Mill. When Gerard's troops come up, that unit is sent back to Van Damme's command and, and Gerard is told to, to take the crossing at Bierge. And the, the ground there is well uh, described by Gerard himself, uh, but also a number of other officers that were present at the time, although there were a lot of fish ponds alongside the river, there were very deep ditches, it was really, really difficult ground to attack across before you actually got to the river. And then there was a very narrow crossing, and in the, on the far side, the buildings of the mill were occupied by the Prussians. It was a difficult, a difficult call. And of course, Gerard was quite seriously uh, wounded there, and his corps failed to take this take the crossing. That is probably when Grouchy gets his inspiration to send Pajol, who was coming up in the rear with his cavalry corps and, a, and an infantry division, to divert to the bridge at Le Mal and seize a crossing there, which Pajol does very quickly and establishes himself with infantry on the far side of the, um, of the river. Uh, and that's really uh, in the late evening that that's established. And that is when uh, Grouchy realizes he's got a crossing. He then orders all his troops uh, to get a, down to Lamal uh, to Lamal and form his men up on the high ground on the far bank uh, in order to launch an attack on the Prussian Third Corps the following morning. Because uh, at this time he's received Napoleon's letter saying, draw nearer to us. Um, and so he's desperate to get things moving. 
So he orders um, Exelman's division, which were uh, above uh, Wavre, to march down to Le Mans, and they do that. He orders Gerard to march his corps there. That happens, but Van Damme ignores his order to uh, to march uh, to Le Mans, and I there is no reason given for this. And Van Damme either he didn't get the order, but he doesn't claim that, or he just chose to ignore his orders and to hold in uh, in Wav. Um, so when Grouchy forms his troops up in the dark uh, on the night of the 18th, um, he has to do so and face the third corps without the whole of Van Damme's corps, which is still uh, on the, uh, the left bank uh, of the dial in the suburb of Wav. Um, and so he doesn't have those troops available to him the next morning, the morning of the 19th. I'm glad that we've already covered the sort of fractious relationship with, with Gerard and and Van Damme, because that, that offers an interesting kind of little thing to just ponder on. And it's very clear from your answer that we don't really know why Van Damme didn't act. Um, but it's, you, you can't help but wonder uh, if, if that's um, an element of play. And the answer is, of course, that we'll never know. But there was something that you picked up on there, which was the, I mean, there are many letters between uh, Napoleon and his subordinates, but the letter that causes major controversy and a great deal of consternation, it has to be said, um, amongst Grouchy's uh, headquarters and staff. Explain to us the confusion over the contents, because it's not something that comes across when you speak the French, but when you write the French, it's a different kettle of fish. Is mm. that right? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, this is the letter that was written by Napoleon. Well, it was written by uh, Marshal Soult. Uh, he wrote it uh, about one o'clock, it's dated, timed, I think, as at one o'clock. It arrived with Grouchy about 5.30. Again, different people say different times, but the general consensus is, with the amount of time it would have taken to travel and so on, that 5.30 on the evening of the, of the, uh, of the 18th uh, was when it arrived with Grouchy. Um, and this effectively is when Napoleon has said that he is happy that Grouchy has marched on Wavre. That that you know that is conforming to what the the emperor wants. So Grouchy is feeling good about himself because Napoleon says that's what I wanted you to do. Um, but then he goes on to say, I want you to manoeuvre in our direction. Of course, about one o'clock, the battle at Waterloo has hardly really started. Um, and he says to Grouchy, come closer to us, so that you know, nobody can come between us. So this is really the first time that, that Napoleon is saying, move to Waterloo. <clears throat> but by this time, when Grouchy gets it at 5.30, he's never going to get there in a million, in a million years. Um, and the key line that you refer to here is that it, it sort of says it translates as, depending on your translation, it says at this moment, the battle is engaged on the line of Waterloo in front of the forest of Swanee. Now, in, in um, Grouchy's memoirs, he says that, uh, and this is reinforced by Grouchy's chief of staff, General Senecal, which says that this was almost uh, illegible. You could hardly read the words that were on it here. And they couldn't tell if what it actually says was gagné, 
or on Gagne. So whether it said the battle was won at Waterloo or the battle was engaged at Waterloo. Now, generally, and those of you who are familiar uh, with Paul Dawson's book on exactly the same subject as mine, he doesn't discuss this uh, controversy and he just um, translates it as the battle is won. Now, if the battle is won, you can imagine that Grouchy, if that's how he really, if that's what he really believed it said, would have been reasonably relaxed because he's just been told that Napoleon has won the Battle of Waterloo. Obviously, if it's engaged and he's telling him to move towards him and try and make sure no one's moving between us, then that's a completely different situation altogether. Uh, so the fact that it was almost illegible, is that true? Was it misread? Did it say one or did it say engaged? There's a controversy. And like I say, there were several people, including his own chief staff of Grouchy of Grouchy's, that said, you know, it was illegible. He also goes on to say that when Grouchy spoke to the officer who carried that order to try and get some clarification, that he was apparently so drunk that he couldn't answer the marshal's questions. Now that seems extraordinary to me, and I think I'm sure it sounds extraordinary to many other people. Um, but this is all just thickening the plot, so to speak, as to what direction Grouchy actually got. And almost the fact that it was too late for Grouchy to, to, to make any appearance at Waterloo anyway sort of is, you know, a, a side, almost a, a side issue over this, because it's hard to believe that the officer who carried that order was so drunk that he couldn't answer any questions. Now, some people, some historians, some modern historians, mostly modern historians, doubt that this letter ever existed and that actually it's a bit of false news, if you like. And there are various reasons that they give for that. However, I think uh, Paul Dawson in his book argues that this was genuine um, and that it is mentioned and quoted in full in a history by Vaudencourt uh, in 1826. And so um, to say that, as some modern historians have, it only came to light in 1905 when Husay uh, published his history of the campaign and therefore it couldn't have been true, um, doesn't really bear scrutiny. Uh, and of course, the other part of it, the, the famous PS to that letter, which says that they've identified the Prussians marching towards the battlefield and therefore do not lose a minute in uh, in approaching and joining us. Uh, people say that was a that was a, a an attempt after the date to, again, exonerate Napoleon from being apparently surprised by the appearance of the Prussians on the battlefield. I they're saying, you know, I wasn't surprised by the Prussians. I'd seen them um, at one o'clock. So I, I knew they were coming long before they engaged uh, about 4.30 or so. So you can see there is quite a lot of controversy still surrounding that letter as to whether it's, whether it's you know, a real letter or, or not, as well as some of the issues surround whether it could be read and whether it said engaged or, or whether it said one. The layers of complexity are, are both fascinating, but also sort of almost farcical, aren't they, in terms of people saying, well, it said one thing. No, it said another. But actually, we don't even know if this letter existed, but there was a PS. Maybe the PS was added as a, an afterthought or, or maybe it was never added. At all, and you just sort of think, how, how is it that, that a single letter can be 
pulled in in so many different ways. Um, but that's that's history. And I guess that's what happens when you tread this ground so many times. And I think, of course, this all then goes back to this whole plot of cover ups and apportioning of blame. And so if you're pro Napoleon and most of the big French histories are and even modern histories are because Napoleon is a, is a hero of France, um, will tend to take Napoleon's view that Grouchy was to blame for the loss of, of Waterloo because Napoleon being so great couldn't possibly have been his fault. Um, and so it's also true that the, the registry of correspondence that is kept within the headquarters changed hands several times. So Salt may well have wished to change a few things to make himself look better or cover up mistakes he had. He then handed it on to Grouchy, who might also have wanted to change the times of when these things were sent off or arrived and so on. And then of course it went into the archives and the archives um, were then the responsibility of several senior officers that were present during the campaign and therefore also had their own reasons that they might have tinkered with them. And many of the actual letters are copies, are registered copies of the originals and the originals don't exist. And therefore there are other people that might have either made a, an innocent mistake or have had some reason why they may have wanted to change some of the detail in order to blame someone and pass the blame from somebody else. So the truth is, I think as you're alluding Zach, is we will never really know. Let's talk about that elephant then that's loomed over this entire interview. I think we've probably got a, a good sense of your, your thinking on this, but to start to sort of bring all of these threads together, to what extent was Grouchy actually to blame for Napoleon's defeat, as ardent Napoleon fans like to claim? Right, this is a tricky one, because did Grouchy make mistakes from the day of Ligny through to Waterloo, yes, of course he did. He made plenty of mistakes. Um, and we've touched on some of them, the slow march, uh, using two calls down the same road, um, his rather muddled interpretation of the evidence as to where, which direction the Prussians had taken, his failure to identify um, the, the uh, locations and march of the first and second Prussian Corps up towards Wav the fact that he never anticipated uh, the fact that the Prussians might march across to, to Waterloo. There were plenty of um, mistakes that he made, but essentially, and I think whatever those mistakes are, he directed his operations in conformity with the orders that, that Napoleon sent him. In other words, he tried to do what Napoleon said. So marching to the sound of the guns, resisting that, quite right. Crossing the Dali the night before or the morning of the 17th and breaking contact with the Prussians in order to do that, he was absolutely right. Um, so he just did what he was told. He didn't do it particularly well. Would that have, would, was he ever in a position to stop the Prussians from marching to Waterloo and my own feeling is no he was never in a position to do that and from when he was at Jean Bleu up until when he got to Wavre so throughout the day the night of the 
17th and throughout the day of the 18th, the Prussians were closer to Waterloo than he was, and he was never going to stop them from getting there. That is my personal belief, and I'm absolutely the first to say this is my interpretation. Everyone will have their interpretation, and providing they've looked at those orders, dissected those orders, they've looked at the ground, they've considered things from the level of information that was known at the time and not what we've learned with the benefit of hindsight. Um, I, you know, I don't, I think it's difficult to, to blame Grouchy. And we must remember that people have blamed Grouchy primarily because Napoleon stated, without that imbecile Grouchy, I would have won the Battle of Waterloo. So unequivocally, Napoleon blamed Grouchy and therefore all subsequent supporters of Napoleon, those who like Napoleon, uh, modern historians who want to protect the reputation of Napoleon as a hero of, of France, have taken the line. It's very easy to blame Grouchy for the failure uh, at Waterloo. I don't think it was Grouchy's fault. The other point is, if um, there had been any success at Waterloo, um, would we be even discussing Grouchy? No, because we'd be lauding Napoleon's success and Napoleon would take all of the credit for success. But so therefore surely in defeat, he deserves his substantial portion of the blame for the failure. I mean, is that a fair comment? Well, I mean, I think it is, but of course, I think any great men like to deflect criticism somewhere else. And let's face it, you know, Napoleon was, Marengo, of course, is perhaps the best example where he had the account of the battle rewritten several times to make himself uh, look better and to make it look as if he wasn't so close to defeat that at one point in the battle he was. So, you know, I think, you know, history is full of, of examples of senior commanders blaming other people for their own failures. And uh, certainly for me, um, I think, I feel that uh, this is an example of that. I mean, the truth is, Grouchy, his son, and his grandsons wrote prolifically about the campaign in order to absolve Grouchy of any blame. Um, and anyone who looks at the amount of books and through their memoirs and so on, the truth is that actually Grouchy wasn't averse to changing a few details himself you know some of the accounts amongst the various publications that he wrote and i've already mentioned one or two actually they are contradictory and one minute he's denying that anything he received any orders to do this and then he's admitting later on that he did receive that order and so you know he was quite happy to strengthen or stretch the truth in order to you know strengthen his own argument um so you know there are holes in his arguments um, but the truth is, his writing never really gained any traction with people for the reasons that we've discussed. In other words, Napoleon was such a big figure um, that you know, he was able to deflect, deflect uh, the blame and everyone was more ready to believe him than they were Grouchy. Absolutely. Is, is one issue here um, that when Grouchy first picks up his pen, in his own defense, he's over in the US and so doesn't have his papers with him. And so he makes a whole host of errors, um, which then means that he looks a bit of a fool 
because yeah. then then people can turn around and produce evidence that goes well this is clearly wrong you don't yeah. know what you're talking about you're just lying your way through this account yeah i've got no doubt you're absolutely right there zach uh, you know, when you haven't got your personal papers called personal correspondence and so on with you, he was really writing from memory. Um, and, you know, we all know we have to be a little bit careful of people that were writing, you know, in the 1850s and 60s about what happened at Waterloo. Um, and he, he was only writing a few years later, but he didn't have that reference material. And so there's no doubt that his story had to change as more material became available and when he was allowed to end his exile and return to France, um, that he had more information. And that's really why, you know, it was his son and it was his and his his grandsons who were really wrote his memoirs. They weren't his memoirs, they were really an interpretation of his correspondence and his own accounts as well. So um, so there's there's no doubt that that, that sort of his early accounts being discredited certainly doesn't help his overall argument. I just want to expand as we wrap this up with uh, one final question. I want to expand on the the theme that you touched on uh, a little bit earlier, which was the sort of the love to hate when it comes to Grouchy. And I've always wondered about two strands of this. One is the one that you've talked about already, Napoleon scapegoating Grouchy. It's all Grouchy's fault. And, you know, when you've got a powerful statement like that, an unequivocal statement, then it spawns its own line of historical thinking in and of itself. The other thing that always strikes me with Grouchy is that he doesn't get the chance to salvage his reputation. It's not like, for example, Ney um, during the, the retreat um, from Moscow and, and getting cut off and then fighting his way back through to the, the French and um, then subsequently having a career after that point, which enables people to sort of set lots of things in within context. Grouchy, Wavre is the end point, and there's nothing to counter that. So is that part of the issue why people kind of pile on him and go, well, look, when it really counted, he, he couldn't deliver? I think, I think you could well be right. Of course, Ney in particular had a number of events in his career that made him a hero of the army and almost someone who could do no wrong. And of course, Napoleon did lay some of the blame on Ney um, at Waterloo, but of course it's never really stuck in the same way as it has with Grouchy. Um, so obviously Grouchy never had an opportunity subsequently to Waterloo to salvage his reputation. And as we've already said during his career, although he was a very effective cavalry commander and there were several battles where he excelled, he never earned himself that sort of affection within the wider army that someone like Ney did or some of the other commanders, um, you know, who, who weren't at Waterloo anyway. Davout, I guess, is a, a good example, but even so to, to a certain extent. So he, because he was only a marshal in 1815 and therefore he was a mere sort of general of division as either divisional command or corps command, he never, and of course, a corps command own, only a cavalry command, he never had that opportunity to excel, which made him uh, a sort of hero within the army that people felt they couldn't touch. He was a very useful scapegoat because people could say, well, you know, who was Grouchy? You should never have been a marshal anyway. Um, and what, what, what's Grouchy ever done for us? <laughs> That's a great line on which to end. Andrew, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. 
I expected to really enjoy this one. And I absolutely did. I've learned a few things uh, along the way, having already read the book. So part of me wonders if I didn't pay quite enough attention, um, which is quite astonishing because I enjoyed it massively and took several uh, pages of notes from it. Um, folks, obviously, I'm going to tell you to go and buy the book. You need to. If you haven't previously understood all of the controversies around Grouchy, I mean, here's the, here's the evidence of somebody who really knows what they're talking about and can offer you a solid interpretation of why so, man, so much of the mythology around it is just plain wrong. It's a great book, heavy use of primary source material in there, which I, I'm always a fan of. Um, apologies, your ears are probably going to burn as I say this, but I'm, I'm going to keep uh, lauding praise uh, on your work. Um, because Andrew's also very good at letting the, the accounts speak for themselves and not kind of manipulating them, but kind of laying out the evidence. Um, he looks deeply uncomfortable at me <laughs> praising him so vociferously. Uh, so folks, go buy the book, Grouchy's Waterloo, The Battles of Ligny and Wav. But also, whilst you're there, why not pick up the others? Waterloo, The French Perspective, Waterloo, The French Perspective, and Catch a Bra, Prelude to Waterloo, and also the new release, Wellington's Waterloo Allies, which Andrew and I are going to have a conversation about in just a moment when we stop recording, but I think is going to need to be the focus of a future episode, because that's a fascinating topic in and of itself. I believe all of them are published by Pen and Sword, is that right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So folks, you know the rant, go direct to the publisher, please. If you really can't afford it, then sure, go to Amazon and let Jeff Bezos turn your money into rocket fuel. I do understand, but support the author, support the independent publisher, go direct. If you're Napoleonist's patron, remember that you get 10% off at Pen and Sword Books. Um, so you do get a benefit. So there you go. I've given you an additional incentive there to go and uh, uh, buy direct uh, through, the, through the publisher, uh, Patreon listeners. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Um, you're not on social media, I gather, which is probably a highly intelligent decision. Well, first of all, I'm sitting here being very embarrassed um, by your accolades, um, Zach. So I thank you. I thank you for that. I think my only comment on that is that, of course, I'm, even after an hour or so that we've been talking, we're still really only scratching the, the surface of that. And I'll, I know I'll reflect for the next few hours on things I wish I'd said and, and didn't say. Um, and so whilst not wanting to push my book, I would say, you know, I would recommend people who are interested in Grouchy is really to dig into the weeds uh, and have a look at what is out there. Look at the primary material. I've got a pile of Grouchy's different uh, accounts in front of me now. There is so much really fascinating information there that will allow people to make their own uh, interpretation of things um, and and of course looking at primary material is always fascinating anyway it absolutely is Andrew it's been an absolute joy thank you so much for your time thanks very much Zach hello again folks yes I know the usual ever so slightly tedious begging letter as always, please remember to like and subscribe. Little things that make a colossal difference. It's the algorithm that drives how widely these episodes are spread and your inclination to like the posts on social media, Facebook, Twitter and so on. 
that willingness to hit the share button, to take that link and copy it into your own social media feeds. Those are the kinds of things that make a colossal difference in terms of wider reach and bringing in new people who can enjoy this show. And if you're enjoying it, then it would be great for other people to share that enjoyment with you. So please do take the time to spread the word. I'm conscious that a number of people who with the best one in the world I don't even know are being very kind and doing that kind of thing. If you're one of those, then believe me, heartfelt thanks to you. Um, those of you who aren't, if you can spare the time, please do. It, you know, it takes a, a few seconds and a little bit of electricity. It makes a massive difference. Um, but the most important thing, there's a subscribe button. Just whack that and then you'll be able to get live updates whenever the next episode goes out. As you know, this is a show that endeavours to run on a shoestring budget, so if you are willing and able to contribute, either as a one-off um, or as something kind of more regular, please know that it makes a massive difference. All the funds get reinvested, so none of this is about lining my own pocket. It's all about how can we kind of build the show and uh, look to provide fresh content, um, but also more diverse content. So the big thing that I'm looking at for the future is how to launch a YouTube channel successfully and considering some kind of live stream capability and what that might or might not look like. No promises at this stage. The other thing I would say is that if you want more content, if you're able to um, uh, contribute to the, the Patreon scheme, it does help in terms of trying to reach that goal of ultimately going weekly. That is what I would like to do. Have one of these go out every single week, 52 in a year, but these are huge investments of time even when an episode isn't four hours long, like some of the ones you've had recently, it it takes a, a good four hours per episode, absolute minimum, probably close to six in terms of editing and, and preparation and recording time and so on and so forth. Obviously, I am sitting here playing the world's smallest violin, but if you enjoy the show and if you would like more content, please do consider whether or not you're able to contribute. I know times are hard. Um, there are links in the description. Go to Patreon if you're considering um, something regular on a, on a monthly basis. The idea with that is that there are different tiers. They start at £1 a month, um, go up all the way up actually to uh, £25 a month for those who are insanely generous. Um, and you get different perks within each tier. So you can get shout-outs within episodes, you can get one-to-one -one meetings with me, voting rights to determine themed months. Uh, Marshall patrons, for example, can actually demand episodes. Um, so if any of that is of interest to you, please do consider uh, whether or not you would like to become a patron. Equally, a one-off tip can be made via Ko-fi. Um, and whatever support you're able to offer, I am massively grateful, as I'm sure you know. A particular shout out to my Emperor level patrons Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb and Rachel Stark. My Commander patrons John Haynes, Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meekin, Michael Guest and Graham Swydenbank. And my mentioned in Dispatches patrons M Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Mars Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, 
Ryan Diamond, Rob Coathlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson and Graham Goodwin. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.